to me, remote is like part of being able to build the life that you want. So the more flexibility and options there are out there, I, I think that's generally the, the better way. The, the way we always kind of have talked about at Tortuga, especially when we were recruiting people, is that like you should be able to kind of choose where you live based on what you like, whatever it is. You know, you want to be around your family, you love this big city, you want to be in nature, whatever it is. And then your job and, and work is kind of can be after that rather than, well, I have to move to New York City because I want to work in, you know, whatever industry. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Kraszowski, and welcome to episode 113 of That Remote Life podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm very excited to be joined by Fred Parada, the founder and CEO of Tortuga Backpacks. Now, I've been a fan of Tortuga since I started traveling, and I own several of their bags and love the product. And besides making amazing bags for digital nomads and professional travelers, Tortuga is also a fully remote company, and most of their staff are made up of digital nomads, so they truly represent who they serve. During this interview, Fred and I discussed how he and his co-founder started Tortuga after reading the four-hour workweek and taking a backpacking trip to Europe, what the future of online business and remote work looks like, and we also got to nerd out on bags, product design, and everyday carry. If you're a digital nomad, a remote work nerd, or aspiring entrepreneur, I think you're going to find this interview very interesting. Before we jump into the interview, however, make sure that you subscribe to my YouTube channel, which you can find a link to in the show notes for this episode. I publish every podcast interview there in video form, and I also release original content every Thursday about the digital nomad lifestyle, remote work, and online business that you can only find on YouTube by subscribing to my channel. To subscribe, just click on the link in the show notes or search for my full name, Mitko Karshovsky. That's M-I-T-K-O-K-A-R-S-H-O-V-S-K-I. Finally, I'd love to hear what you think about this podcast. I've made it very easy to leave a review. All you have to do is head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash TRL and write your review. That's it. It's that easy. If you're enjoying this podcast, leaving a review is one of the best ways to support us. Reviews are a key statistic that podcasting apps look at in order to determine how to rank a podcast. So your review will directly help us climb the rank boards and attract new listeners. So thank you in advance for leaving a review if you choose to do so. And thank you for joining me over on YouTube. Now, without further ado, guys, let's dive into this awesome interview with Fred Parada from Tortuga Backpacks. All right, Fred, welcome to the show, man. Uh, I'm super stoked to have you here finally. Thanks for, for having me. I'm glad we were able to connect. Yeah, uh, like we were talking before we hit record, I've been a big fan of Tortuga, which is your bag company for a long time. And if anybody who's been following me for a while knows, 
Uh, I'm a nerd about like bags and product design, that kind of stuff. So uh, you were actually one of the very first people that I was like, I want to have Fred from Tortuga on the podcast when I was starting it way back when. So this is kind of like a little bit of like a dream come true to have you on here. So uh, thanks for agreeing to be here. Awesome. Thank you. That's uh, very nice of you to say. Uh, so let's start off with this. Before uh, we hit record, you were telling me that you are, you know, normally you live in the Bay Area, uh, as far as I know, and currently you're building out an Airbnb in Joshua Tree. And I'm curious because in the news, uh, there's been a lot of talk around people moving out of San Francisco and sort of spreading out to other cities in the U.S. just because like everyone's working remotely and all of a sudden they're finding out, hey, I can go live in this other location keep my job in San Francisco and bring my costs lower. What do you think about that? Is that something that you are sort of thinking about doing as well? Like what has been your feeling and your personal experience from that as somebody who is from the Bay area? Yeah, I've, uh, I've been all over the place. So uh, I'm originally from, from Pennsylvania, kind of near Pittsburgh. So not too far from uh, where I understand you make your base part of the year. Um, and yeah, I, I guess I moved out of San Francisco, uh, lived there originally out of college, uh, kind of got my first job, moved there. I moved out in 2015, I think, something like that. Uh, traveled for like a couple months, came back, moved to Oakland. I've sort of like been moving farther east in the Bay Area. So uh, right now I've been living in kind of the suburbs of, uh, of the East Bay. So I guess I for other reasons, kind of already made one of the transitions that is happening now, which is people moving from a city to a suburb, whether it's, you know, outside of the city they were living in or, or elsewhere, um, where, you know, maybe it's a little cheaper for them, maybe they get more space, whatever, but because they're now working remotely, or sometimes remotely, like hybrid kind of setup, uh, they don't mind more of a commute, you know, so in, in the Bay Area, you even hear stories of people moving to uh, like Napa and wine country, which is like an hour away, but they only have to go into the office once a week. Maybe they don't mind that drive. Uh, you know, that lifestyle trade-off is, is worthwhile for them. Um, and now we're seeing it in places like uh, I'm down in Joshua tree right now. So places where um, are that are very beautiful. People want to live for uh, whatever the nature lifestyle, whatever, but places that just didn't have jobs. So you couldn't really live here. Um, and that typically will correlate with a place that is often much cheaper. So even though Joshua Tree is a cool, uh, kind of artistic little town, gorgeous national park here, all that, the, the cost of housing is much less than in most of California. Um, you see this not cost of housing isn't super low, but you see this a bit in like Tahoe where, uh, Lake Tahoe, gorgeous. People love to live up there in the summer. It's super nice in, uh, you know, winter, get the, the skiing skiers. So places like that, where, you know, people would live part-time or just go up on the weekends before, maybe at a vacation house, if they could afford it, suddenly that's a place you could just live full-time and, you know, it's gorgeous, great, uh, great style, lifestyle there. Um, and, you know, there's starting to be more jobs, but if you work remotely, suddenly that the, the local job scene doesn't really matter. So, that's kind of the interesting one to me. And I think we'll see, you know, we're starting to see a little bit of boom or increased growth in, uh, you know, nicer suburbs where people want to live. That's also partially just millennials are hitting the age where they're having families and buying homes. So that was probably going to happen anyway. Uh, the kind of interesting one, which will probably be a little harder or generate some, some pushback is the like, uh, 
kind of lifestyle destination that just didn't really have jobs before, but now that's kind of out of the equation for a lot of people, um, you know, your sort of nature type destination. So those are the interesting ones. I assume there'll be some local pushback, you know, that would drive up housing prices, all kinds of stuff may happen, but uh, you know, it's, it's good to spread people around because we've got a lot of density in cities like uh, San Francisco. We actually need more density, but we have a lot of people there and it's just like, making housing costs a little crazy. So if we can all spread out a little bit, that might help. Yeah, I think it's gonna be really interesting to see what this like rise of remote work does to American sort of society and also politics, just because like all of a sudden you have all these people from cities leaving and going to like more rural areas. So I think it's gonna be really interesting. And it's also been really fun to kind of see it, uh, you know, like you, you can read about things, but then it becomes really interesting when you actually have like personal examples, like. We have friends of ours who were living in New York, went traveling, and then came back and decided to actually buy uh, this cabin in uh, North Carolina. And so they were like, you know, like we work for companies now that don't care where we work. So why not, you know, buy a, a place in the cabins of North Carolina instead of going to a city? And so, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think that's going to be a trend that we're going to see a lot more. Uh, and it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. But I want to go back, you know, uh, to the beginning of Tortuga, because I know I've heard the origin story uh, that you and your co-founder were on a uh, trip on a backpacking trip trip to Europe and you just couldn't find the right backpacks. And, you know, you either had to choose between backpacking backpacks or just that you just couldn't find the right thing. But what I'm curious is. Were you entrepreneurially minded before that and that trip and that experience just sort of pointed you in the right direction of where to spend that entrepreneurial energy? Or did you have no ideas, no concepts? You had never thought about starting your own business before that. And then that was kind of the, the beginning of everything. I, I wanted to start something, but hadn't done anything. So I guess I was saying I was entrepreneurially minded then, but I wasn't doing, taking any actions on it. So uh, I don't know if that makes me a, a entrepreneur at the time or not. But uh, yeah, it was something I always uh, said that I wanted to do. Just, you know, I, I think just uh, some of it is just kind of the personality of like, you know, at first you always think like, oh, I don't want anyone telling me what to do. I'm going to decide, you know, how, how everything works. It's not exactly how it goes once you're an entrepreneur, but, um, you know, I had a little bit of that mindset. Uh, my dad had started his own uh, business, so I'd seen a little bit of that um, uh, first person uh, with him. And yeah, by the time we were uh, took this trip that kind of gave us the idea for a product, uh, I had been working, I was at Google at the time, I'd been working there like two years and change out of college uh, and was just kind of seeing that the path upward for me there was just stuff I wasn't interested in, like becoming a manager, even though later became one at Tortuga. Um, and I just didn't see like a path or other exciting options there. And I was already kind of like bored in what I was doing. Um, so wanted something different. Uh, and then the other piece of it was that uh, Jeremy, my co-founder, uh, and I, we had both just read the four hour work week, which um, at the time was kind of the like, the blueprint for that we tried to follow eventually. Um, and helped for us, it helped to connect like uh, something that we wanted with like how to possibly do this thing you don't know how to do. So it kind of bridged that gap between like just vaguely wanting something and trying to figure out, okay, here's how we actually do it. Uh, 
And we tried to use that as, as kind of our initial blueprint for the business. So I really relate to this idea that you said of kind of being like a entrepreneur, like you were entrepreneurially minded, but you never really did anything about it. And I was totally that for my entire like late teenage years in my early 20s, where I was like, I knew it was something that I wanted to do, but I just wasn't really taking any action. I wasn't executing any of the ideas. What was like the push for you to go from, okay, like this is something that I want to do and something that I'm constantly thinking about to I'm actually going to go out there and do this and start this bag company? Yeah. So uh, I mentioned I was working at Google and I had hit the point, it was only a couple years in, but I was already just kind of like bored, unhappy. It was just like that kind of malaise you sometimes hit when you're in a job that's like not, you don't love or, or isn't right for you. And you know, at the time, Google was always number one on those lists of like best places to work. It was before, you know, a lot of the other tech companies had all the same perks and stuff. And I mean, it was a good place. I'm not bashing it, but um, I was kind of looking at myself and thinking like, this is the number one place to work and <laughs> I don't like it. That's probably not good. So maybe that means I can't work anywhere or at least like just switching to a different company wasn't going to be a uh, you know, a uh, kind of quick fix to the problem. Um, so that's kind of what gave me a greater need or made me think like this is that I needed to pursue that path rather than just like, well, I'll just, you know, switch companies and then, you know, I'll be happy somewhere else or whatever. So uh, that's kind of what gave me this, the really strong impetus. And then um, having for our work week, then having a problem that we actually wanted to solve and seemed interesting and fun. Um, so it kind of felt like everything was coming together and it was like, oh, now suddenly I, uh, you know, I want to leave and now I have this toolbox for how to do it. So I better do it or otherwise I am the, the entrepreneur or I am the person that's just talking about it and not, not acting on it. What were the things that, cause I totally agree, you know, like Google is one of these places that everybody looks up to like, oh, and it's like something to put on your resume, right? Like if you can say like, I worked at Google that's like a big deal. Like I have a friend who um, designed something and worked for a company uh, that then went on and got funded by Shark Tank. And now it's like all over his resume, you know, because it like it, it grabs eyeballs. Um, what were the things that when you were sort of building Tortuga and starting to build out the culture and the way that you guys work at Tortuga, what were some of the things that you had experienced or seen at Google that you said, I don't want to bring over to Tortuga? So one of my objections when I was uh, at Google was that uh, at least the team I was on, I, I wasn't an engineer. We're in kind of, uh, we basically worked with advertisers and helped them create their ad campaigns and stuff. So uh, one of the, the things I saw was like, there wasn't any real path forward for me other than becoming a manager. There wasn't like, uh, you know, you could get a a promotion or raise, but you're basically just doing the same job unless you switch to management or went to like a totally different team. Um, and there wasn't a lot of help or transparency in how to switch, like totally switch teams or totally kind of switch tracks that you were on. So basically I saw around me, saw a lot of people who were either just staying in the same job forever, which I didn't want to do, or were going to management. And that's all I saw. So um, that was one thing where I wanted, I didn't want it to be a culture where like, you had to become a manager to move up or make more money or have new challenges and you know uh, an exciting job that's actually going to engage you and, and challenge you. 
Um, and then the other part of it was one of the most common uh, pieces of feedback that I would get from managers, especially after I was there for a couple of years and, you know, was, was better at my job was that like, I was doing a good job at my job, but I needed to be more visible and uh, kind of, I mean, the way, the way I would say it, I'm sure they would phrase it differently, but the, the way I heard it was like, I needed to spend more time talking about what I was doing than doing what I was doing. Because I think when they did promotions and things like that, there were a lot of managers involved in those decisions. Not all of them, you know, knew me or were my manager. So basically I needed to spend time promoting myself to people who I didn't work with so that then they would approve my eventual promotion or whatever. So, um, you know, uh, I'm sure there's a nicer way to put it, but I, my like uncharitable vision version of that is that they wanted me to do let like, I was doing a good job at my job, but I should stop that and spend more time on self-promotion. And I just sort of like fundamentally disagreed with that um, as an idea. So both of those kind of informed me and made, uh, made me want to make Tortuga a place where you can like spend as much of your time as possible. Obviously you have to communicate with other people and stuff, but spend as much of your time uh, as possible on like the deep work, you know, focused work kind of solving problems. Um, and less time on self-promotion or, you know, talking about what you did rather than doing the work. Uh, and then the other one was just making sure that there was a way for people to take on new work, kind of grow their responsibilities, um, you know, grow in their career, all that stuff without having to become a manager. So how do you do that? Because I, I definitely understand that, you know, like you don't want to essentially, like if you enjoy what you do, and the only way for you to progress in your job and how much you make is to essentially go out there and like kind of stop doing what you like doing and have to take on responsibilities you don't necessarily maybe care for. But how do you do that? Like, how did you guys actually put that in place at Tortuga? So one of the things uh, we stole this from uh, Help Scout, uh, they're, they're remote too. Uh, they make like a help desk software, uh, but they had a blog post a while ago about uh, rather than calling it like managers and individual contributors or whatever, uh, they call it players and coaches to better better define those roles and make them, I think one, just like change the language. So you're not saying manager all the time and remove some of the associations there. And then uh, kind of better frame it so that people understand like, if you're really good at your uh, job, let's say as a, as a player, like a coach is a different job. It's fine to switch. You know, you can switch. Some people want to become managers and go onto that track, but it is a very different job. And if someone is great at being a player, like we shouldn't force them to become a coach to, you know, continue in their career or make more money or whatever, like that it's fine if they want to do that, but you shouldn't have to, because if you do that for people who don't want to be a manager or um, just aren't great at it, lots of people aren't, aren't good at it. So then you're taking out like a great player and forcing them to be a coach for no reason. Like you're going to hurt yourself doing that, um, hurt your team, you know? So uh, we, we installed that framework to like better define it for people. So they kind of understand like uh, coaches and players are different. You can choose either track, like you can switch, but you know, you can just stay on your track and kind of go up forever in theory. Um, and then tried to make a, that also helped us like make the, the manager coach job act as a coach rather than, you know, no one wants a like manager, like a micromanager manager. So 
if your job is a coach, then it's a little clearer that like, yeah, you have to provide direction for the players and, and kind of help to organize everyone. But, um, you know, the players are the, the stars or something to some degree. So, uh, you know, the coach's job is to help them be great at being players, not to boss them around. Gotcha. You mentioned the four hour work week a little bit ago, which, uh, you know, probably everybody listening to this has heard of sort of like the Bible for digital nomads, so to say. And what's interesting is I know from kind of doing a little bit of research that that trip that you took, that essentially was the genesis of the idea of Tortuga was right around when, you know, the, the book came out oh nine or so. And a lot has changed since then. And you've sort of seen those changes actively as somebody participating in the remote economy, building a remote company. And the four hour work week coming out is sort of like a big moment in the digital nomad and remote work uh, movement, in my opinion. And similar to that, COVID is another, I think, big chapter in that story, so to say. So looking back at how four-hour workweek impacted everything and the, you know, the direction that it set in place, what do you think the next 10 years, you know, post-COVID are going to look like? How do you think that that chapter in the remote work story, so to say, is it going to like affect the direction of where we go? If you can get the answer to that question right, I think there's a, there's a lot of money to be had <laughs> in knowing the answer or guessing right to that one. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's so, uh, especially right now, right? We're recording uh, mid-May. It'll be so interesting to see what, you know, there's a bunch of changes and then some of them are going to stick or be new new trends, like big changes in society. And some things are just going to like bounce right back and revert to to what they were before. So I think that's, that's the big question is like what changes are going to stick. It does seem like at least some of the you know, a lot more companies are definitely going to be remote and stay that way. I think especially smaller ones, bigger companies, TBD, I think, um, like, you know, I'm in the Bay Area. So a lot of the tech companies are saying that they're going to be remote or I think Twitter is claiming that they're going to be remote. A lot are saying hybrid, but, you know, it's one thing to say and it's another to do it. And I think we'll see a lot of people or a lot of companies where they say you can be hybrid or remote, but then, you know, the boss and all the all the highest ranking people are in the office. So then the next tier down are like, well, if I'm remote, like they're not going to see me, that's going to be bad for my career. So they go to the office and then it kind of trickles down. So um, yeah, that, I think that's, that's the one that's sort of a bigger question mark to me. But I think worst case, we're, we'll see more, more people allowed to work remotely, even at bigger companies. And, you know, if you're a little bit more established in your career or, whatever, you have different priorities, you have a family and you want to be able to be home more and spend more time with them and are okay. You know, maybe you, you're trading off some, uh, whatever promotion potential or something, cause you're remote and you know, a lot of people are in the office. So, uh, I think we'll, we'll see more flexibility, whether that's, you know, hybrid working remotely a couple of days a week, more people being allowed rather than like, you know, a lot of companies have the, that one person who worked remotely before. Um, I think we'll see more flexibility there, which, I think it's kind of the, the ultimate end goal because then people get to make that choice, right? You want to work, you want the stability or imagine stability of a big company, but you want to work remotely. Great. You can do that. Um, you know, you want to strike out on your own, then, then that's your option. I, I think that's for me, kind of the ideal outcome that way, you know, people can, uh, 
to me, remote is like part of being able to build the life that you want. So the more flexibility and options there are out there, I, I think that's generally the, the better way. The, the way we always kind of have talked about at Tortuga, especially when we were recruiting people is the like, you should be able to kind of choose where you live based on what you like, whatever it is, you know, you want to be around your family, you love this big city, you want to be in nature, whatever it is. And then your job and, and work is kind of can be after that, rather than, well, I have to move to New York City because I want to work in, you know, whatever industry. So um, I think being able to, to decouple those things is good. That way you can choose where you want to work or what kind of work you want to do, what kind of company, all that. You can choose where you want to live. And those can be like discrete decisions. So, you know, you want to work for a big company, but live somewhere super remote. Great. You can do it. You want to live in a city and work independently and, and kind of be on your own. You can do it. I, I think that flexibility will, will be great for people. Yeah. I think what's really important that you mentioned there is this, uh, I think in the past people who worked remotely were sort of giving up this opportunity to grow within their company, right? Because like you mentioned, like if the boss is in the office and you're not putting in FaceTime with the boss, then, you know, the chances of you getting that promotion or whatever may be kind of drop off. But I think that's what's so important about being like remote, being a part of the culture of the company, because then you're not just this odd person out that's like doing things on their own and a bit rogue. But if the company themselves are remote, if the boss, if the management themselves are saying, hey, you don't need to be here we're not here, we're not in the offices, then it sort of removes that pull to the office, if that makes sense. Like, I don't like, I think this flex work thing isn't really going to work out very well if it's like, well, you can work from home if you want, but we're going to be here. Like, I don't really see that working out. I could see the flex work thing working out if it's like, like, I think it's Salesforce that it essentially announced they're converting all of their offices or what they're keeping as offices into co-working spaces and saying like, hey, if you want to come in, you know, Monday, Tuesday, that's fine. You know, this team can come in, you know, Wednesday, Friday, whatever it is. Like, I think that that's kind of possible. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what the percentage as like a tipping point would be, but, um, you know, if you hit a, a large enough percentage where people are working remotely within any given company, then you know, they stop the remote, uh, people stop being the exception, they stop being, uh, you know, at a constant disadvantage, it might still be a little bit of a disadvantage. But, um, you know, it's not like I think there's a lot of companies where, you know, there's one, one or two people who work remotely, they were whatever, a great employee, but their spouse had to move for something. And, you know, they're the exception. But if whatever, 20% of your company or 30, 40, whatever, works remotely, at least a bit, then, those uh, the remote people can start to like have a voice and be at least at less of a disadvantage. Mm. Speaking of COVID, you know, obviously COVID affected the travel industry um, pretty heavily. You, we couldn't travel a lot, all those sort of things. And like, I'm sure that it affected you guys at Tortuga as well. What were some of the actions that you took in order to make sure that Tortuga made it through this tough period? Um, and like, how has that worked out? Uh, well, we're still here, so it's, uh, worked out well enough so far. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, not a good few, I don't know, weeks to a couple months, uh, at the beginning of it. We actually just had a team retreat in like mid February where, you know, it was like a thing we knew about was happening in China or whatever, but, you know, didn't seem to be, a 
real threat here yet, or, you know, we weren't worried about having a, a retreat. And then, you know, you go home and a couple weeks later, like the world shut down. It was kind of wild looking back. Um, but yeah, we had to, uh, to make a lot of very hard changes and sacrifices. We um, had to lay off actually most uh, of our team. Um, we did, we used some of the uh, like stimulus government assistance type stuff, uh, partially just to like make sure we had money in the bank. And also we wanted to pay off, make sure that any of our outstanding uh, bills and debts and stuff were paid so that um, we would maintain good relationships with our vendors and like, you know, we intended to live uh, through this. So we wanted to make sure that like we didn't burn every bridge in the meantime, just to, to stay alive. Um, so yeah, we um, kind of cut costs uh, as quickly as we could. Uh, I mean, if you look at the chart of flights um, or like people going through TSA, I think is the number they track, but you know, it goes to like practically zero last uh, April or so. And then kind of slowly uh, jumps up a little bit and then plateaus for a while. So, you know, that, that same chart is basically what our sales looked like, or it was like, <laughs> had a nice year in 2019, you know, off to a decent start for 2020. And then all of a sudden, like you fall off this cliff. So um, yeah, we, you know, it, at first we thought like, oh, we might have to make some, you know, really hard choices here. This is going to be, uh, this is going to be a really tough time. And then you know, maybe a week after I was putting out some warnings to the team of like, hey, here's like what we're seeing. We don't totally know what's happening. Like, these are the things that might happen just to, you know, be as transparent as possible. Probably a week later, we had another team call that was like, okay, this is happening. And here's what we have to do about it. Um, yeah, it, uh, I don't know. Obviously, it's like a manager or coach, like we we're discussing someone being in charge of the business. Uh, we were 12 people at the time. So, you know, have some responsibility to, to all these folks. And, uh, yeah, it was not a, not a great time to be, uh, the manager or the boss and yeah, had to make, uh, I don't know, had to make a lot of, uh, sacrifices and, you know, uh, I mean, uh, I'm still with the company obviously, and a lot of our, our team is not. So, you know, you could say they made, um, greater sacrifices or, uh, whatever, but, yeah, it was uh, it was not a, a good or happy time. Those first couple months were were pretty rough, just work wise. Aside from you know everything that's mm -hmm. happening uh, in the world. Yeah, the reason why I asked that isn't just to like re you know force you to like remember that time. It's because you know I think going through periods of this, it's it's one of the ways that you recognize new entrepreneurs versus those who've been through a few periods like that. Right? Is like. Once you go through it once, it makes you more prepared for the next time, right? And you're almost like you, like the way that it's been described to me from some people who've been in business for a long time is you kind of like look at things differently and like you, you think about them in a different way. So coming out of that experience, do you, are you walking away with any sort of like lessons or just anything that maybe somebody who's a first time entrepreneur who is, you know. I don't know if you've seen the charts, but there have never been more businesses started than like, you know, yeah, this year. So there's a lot of new owners starting up businesses at the moment who aren't going to experience a tough period like this, at least for a little bit. So what are the, hopefully for a little bit. So what are, you know, some of those lessons that you walked away from this experience that you would pass on to those people starting businesses now? So if you're starting a business now, you're pretty much in the same position that we were because we started in 2009. So, um, you know, we took this 
this trip that started the business because it was like kind of uh, early on in that recession and flights were really cheap. So we took a trip. Um, so we were basically starting out where like, I mean, I didn't think about it at the time, like the larger market, but you know, travel was down, um, you know, the spending was down, all that sort of stuff. By the time we launched was really like 2011. So, you know, the, the recovery had kind of started a little bit by then, but um, you know, I, I have seen those stats about like the, how many successful businesses were started during recessions. Cause you're basically starting into a headwind. So it's like, if you get some momentum and manage to launch something then, then, you know, you're, you're already showing some resiliency or showing there's some need for that, that product. So um, if you're starting now and, and survive a year or two, you're, you're probably in great shape. Um, but if it, you know, uh, if things look good for the next few years and, you know, it's like all up and to the right for the next few years, uh, it's probably good, good to remember that it doesn't always stay like that. It happens for a while. And then we have a little cliff that might be, uh, you know, when you zoom out 2008 suddenly looks like kind of small relative to, to 2020s dip. Um, but yeah, at, at some point, like whatever that up and to the right is, it's going to get interrupted. It might be small, it might be huge, but, um, you know, it's good to remember that, like, you know, it's good to take advantage uh, and, you know, spend the money, you know, be aggressive, all that stuff in the good times, but also know that those don't last forever. So, you know, don't assume, uh, you know, you're going to be making more money tomorrow than today. So you can always, you know, take out debt or spend more than you're making or whatever, all the stuff that you can kind of get away with uh, when times are really good. And, you know, each day is better than the last, but at some point that that music stops for some amount of time. So uh, it's good to be ready for that. I, I would say we like, we, we definitely had the mentality that, you know, we we're on a 10 year bull run at that point. So like just historically, probably we were gonna like have some kind of correction, recession, whatever. Uh, obviously we didn't expect like, you know, travel to drop. What happened? 90% yeah. or whatever. So um, yeah, I, I mean, for me or for Tortuga, I'm kind of looking at it as like, um, you know, a good time to learn some lessons, but also if, you know, if we can survive this, then I don't want to get overconfident, but like, I feel pretty bulletproof, like any, whatever the next version of this is, it probably won't be as bad. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't say that. I'm going to like jinx myself, but, um, you know, if you can survive a really tough time or if you're starting a business, you know, you can get off the ground at this point, like, uh, I think that's something to be like proud of and feel good about. And, you know, for sure, pat yourself on the back, but also know that like, uh, you know, you have to be ready for the next one of these, whatever that means in terms of mm. like, you know, having cash in the bank, managing your debt, all those sort of like big things that like when the music stops, suddenly, you know, the bank suddenly isn't so friendly or uh, everyone who is generous with terms suddenly uh, needs to be paid. So um, yeah, we, uh, it's also a good time to learn like who's a good partner to continue working with and who uh, who's only a partner in the good times. So mm. a lot of lessons to be learned, but uh, yeah, if you're starting out now, um, awesome and and congrats and thanks for leading uh, an entrepreneurship boom, which uh, I think we needed. Yeah. And I think, you know, in terms of travel, like it was definitely travel and like the supporting industries around that I think are the ones that got hit the hardest and the longest but I also think stand to win the most now in terms of I, I was reading um, an article a few months back about somebody was calling it the roaring 22s. 
and how everybody that's had money saved up and is now like not only has money put away to travel and they're going to use it to travel because all of a sudden they couldn't. But also, I think for a lot of people, at least people that I've talked to as well, they had this mentality of like, oh, there's always time to go see this place. I'm always going to be able to go there. And all of a sudden you weren't allowed to leave the United States. You weren't allowed to enter some of these places that you'd always wanted to go to, but figured you'd go to at some point later on. And so I think like travel is going to have a big comeback because now all of a sudden these people are like, oh my God, finally we can go somewhere. And I have to go to this place because like, all like, what if, you know, I can't go to it at some point. So I, I think you guys and a lot of other people who have been able to sort of ride this out, stand to win big now because there's going to be a boom and, you know, you guys are going to there to, to help that out, but sort of moving into, I know that you talked about the fact that you guys made your bags in China. You had um, a visit to China and that you've been working sort of in factories over there, as well as I know a lot of, I mean, a lot of work, a lot of product manufacturing was happening in China. And one of the reports that I was reading the beginning of the whole pandemic was how this could affect the Chinese manufacturing because all of a sudden companies are going to begin to realize, oh, I'm overly dependent. Entire industries might realize they're overly dependent on China. Is that something that you guys have thought about as well? Or are you still looking at working with China? Are you sort of diversifying into where the bags are made? Just sort of what is your you know viewpoint on that? Yeah, we had uh, actually started diversifying um, before the pandemic, but for different reasons. Um, you know, early on, we were worried there was going to be like a supply issue because, you know, started in China and stuff was shutting down there. Um, we already had some orders and some products on their way. So, you know, we thought we'd be okay for a while, but we're worried like, oh, what if we can't get any more product? But um, we'd started diversifying to Vietnam, which is uh, kind of the other big bag producer internationally. Um uh, probably, a, I guess, a couple years before that, um, mm-hmm. I'd been over there and did uh, visited some factories uh, a few years before, and then uh, we had just produced some of our first products uh, in Vietnam. And the reason that kind of drove that change was uh, the increased tariffs on imports from China under Trump administration. So uh, for travel goods, which is like bags, suitcases, luggage, all that kind of stuff, uh, it went from historically the the duties were 17.6%. So, you know, if you import a bag for whatever, let's say, uh, you know, you caught, you paid a hundred dollars to make it, you'd pay 1760, um, basically to the, to the U S for, to be able to import it. So it went from 17.6%, uh, to 42.6. So it's kind of a big change in costs. Um, Mm -hmm. so we were already dealing with that and didn't seem to be uh, an end in sight there. So, uh, had already started diversifying to uh, Vietnam, which didn't have those uh, extra tariffs just to be able to continue with like the kind of pricing structure and stuff mm-hmm. we built the business around uh, previously. So uh, we had already started down that path and, um, you know, the tariffs are still in place. So we'll, uh, we'll still continue down that path. And Vietnam's pretty much as good or better than China. Um, a lot of companies- Especially in fabrics and- yeah, yeah. A lot of companies have been there for years. Like Patagonia's made Nike, stuff there I think. for years. Um, Osprey. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of brands that have have been there for years. And most importantly, they have the rest of the supply chain is is either there or nearby. Um, it's one thing to do the actual uh, like usually the factory does. They call it like cut and sew. So they get material, they cut it, they sew it. Um, but you also need to 
buy the zippers, buy the buckles, you know, all the little pieces that go into it. And um, that infrastructure is there in Vietnam, whereas some of the other countries, like, of course, when the tariffs increased uh, in China, a lot of those factories then started moving to like uh, Myanmar, Cambodia, all these other places nearby. But, you know, the, the skills and expertise aren't there, the supply chains aren't there as much. So, um, you know, maybe in the future, those will be great place to make bags. But right now, it's pretty much China and Vietnam, if you want to do like, really good quality and, and have the supply chains and everything there. Speaking about bags, let's chat a little bit about uh, the lineup and sort of, uh, you know, traveling with Tortuga. What are you currently uh, traveling with in terms of bags? Like, what are your favorite bags in the Tortuga lineup? And like, what are you personally traveling with? Or so over the, when you could travel, I should say. <laughs> from when we started, I, I just keep like downsizing, I think. Like the first, uh, when we first started working on a bag, it wasn't even carry-on sized. Then we, by the time we actually got to like deciding what to do and making it, we made a, a kind of max in the U.S. carry-on size bag, which is 45 liters. Then I got used to that. Then we started downsizing. So every time, like whenever you see us making a smaller bag, it's probably partially driven by me. So um, <laughs> usually my go-to for trips is uh, the set-out divide. So uh, that's kind of like one of our smaller bags, but expands a little bit depth-wise. So it's good for me for like, if it's a short trip, I just, you know, have it unexpanded and nice and small and slim. Uh, and then if it's a longer trip, I'll, I'll usually expand it out. So I have a little more space for, you know, a couple extra t-shirts and socks and underwear and all that stuff. Um, usually that's my go-to right now. Uh, for this trip down here, I actually brought a discontinued product, the, the home-based backpack, because my closet's full of like, I never have like the correct current products. I always have kind of early samples or stuff we've discontinued I always have a random mix. So uh, that's one of my others that I travel with. And mostly I brought that one because uh, it's super light and has decent, it's kind of like mid-sized, so a little bit bigger. Um, give me a little more space to throw stuff in there because I'm down here for an unknown amount of time. Yeah. I used to work for a denim, uh, like a high-end denim company when I lived in Cincinnati. Uh, it was called Noble. It's a great company. They don't, they are not around anymore, but that was the best part about working at Noble was like, you would get these like, you know, like test run jeans that like didn't make it to, you know, get sold, but they're like really cool. And like, maybe there were like some like experimental things that they made that you kind of like people who worked there ended up kind of like getting as like a little side benefit. And that was like, I would always love that. It was kind of like having the insiders view on, on those companies, you know, on those products, but what are your favorite, you know, features to look for in a backpack, whether that is a Tortuga backpack or another backpack that you think, um, is, is really good at what it does. Like, what are some of those features that you look for? So usually what I tell people and like, obviously we've built our, uh, all of our products to these principles, but I think they actually are like the reason we've done that is because we think that's actually what makes for a good travel bag. So a uh, couple things we start with are like carry on sized, uh, especially for our audience. You know, people don't want to one have a giant bag. They got to lug around. Uh, they don't want to pay to check it. They don't want to wait a baggage claim. It's just like more to physically carry and more kind of mental baggage. So uh, we're, we're really big on the carry on only. And that's how I'd advise people to travel, even if that's like feels like a stretch for them. And, you know, they need to really cut down. I, I think that's worth it. Um, the other thing that's big for travel and was uh, kind of really what started us on the journey is having a, 
a bag that opens from the front. So usually it'll be called like front loading, panel loading, clamshell, something like that. But basically it opens from the front like a book or a suitcase rather than from the top, like a hiking bag. Uh, and that just lets you kind of keep everything organized. You can grab whatever you need without, you know, having to pack and unpack everything else. Uh, just kind of makes it easier and faster to do everything you're doing. Um, and then the other ones for me uh, personally are uh, being comfortable. We've all had bags that were like destroying our shoulders or neck or whatever because of how they were designed or how we overpacked them or whatever. Um, you know, comfort's always paramount, especially when you're traveling and, you know, you got the bag on all day going to the airport and wherever else. Uh, and then because, because uh, of building bags for travel where when you're using it, you might be, you're not home, basically. You might be on the other side of the world or at least, you know, an hour away or something. So you want something that's durable because if it fails, it's going to suck because you can't get it replaced right that moment. Um, and, you know, we, we experienced this because the, the very first day of our trip, um, Jeremy had bought a used bag from Craigslist. So we show up, uh, we flew into Frankfurt, take the train um, from the airport, get to the hostel. We walk in, Jeremy throws his bag on the bed and the shoulder strap ripped off. I mean, it was like we had just checked in. It was, you couldn't write it any better. So uh, that was kind of a good lesson in like, it has to be really durable, not just because, you know, obviously that's important for any product you're, you're spending money on, but if it fails, it's just like way worse than something failing at home. And, you know, you order another one from Amazon and have it in two days because if our stuff fails, then the rest of your trip sucks and you're blaming it on us and you're going to come home and be mad. And maybe you don't even want a replacement or a repair or refund because you now hate this brand. So mm. uh, for me, that's, that's a big one just because like, if it fails, you're going to be mad about it. And if you bought the, you know, some cheapo bag because you didn't want to spend money on your luggage or whatever, and it fails, like you're going to regret it and be mad at yourself. So like, you don't have to spend it on Tortuga, but like get a good quality bag if you're going to be traveling. Yeah. I have to say, uh, you talked about like the comfortability and I, it's not something that I really thought about in terms of like the straps of a backpack that much. It's not something that I paid a lot of attention to until I got a Tortuga backpack, because I have to tell you the straps on those backpacks are incredible. Even on like my big 45 liter that I have. Yes. I pack it up and yes, it's heavy and it's only going to be so comfortable, but I think they do a phenomenal job of being comfortable at that weight. And I am constantly so impressed with, uh, I, my daily bag, the one that I carry around with me all the time when I'm at home, or when I'm traveling is the 21 liter outbreaker, the, the packable one, the day pack. And the straps on that are incredible. I just, you know, I just talked to a, I talked a friend into buying one of them recently because he was asking me about it. And I was like, put this on, like put it on and then put on your other bag and tell me how you feel. And he like literally that day bought one. So I do have to say you guys did an incredible job um, with the bag straps. What about like, what are some of the things that you take with you day to day, like everyday carry, you know, that's like a big topic now. Uh, when you're going out to a coffee shop or you're traveling, what are the things that you kind of take with you every single day? That's another one where I'm always trying to downsize. And in this case, it's because I just, for whatever reason, I don't like stuff in my pockets. And, yep. you know, women are lucky or depends. You have to ask people. But, uh, you know, it is nice to have another bag. Like, uh, you know, if you're a woman and you have a purse or if you're a guy and like, I basically just always have that same outbreak or day pack with me uh, from carrying anything because 
just hate having anything in my pockets other than my, you know, I've got the wallet, keys, phone, the usual stuff in there. And then um, usually if I'm uh, kind of out and about or working from, you know, somewhere other than home, um, I'll, I carry that same bag. I'll break a day pack. That's kind of my commuter bag. Uh, and I'll have my laptop in there, charger for laptop and, and phone. Uh, and then always have a notebook with me. Uh, still, still do some stuff a little old school. Uh, it's nice to be able to shut the computer and still do something useful or I'll kind of do like brainstorming, uh, morning pages type stuff in there. So, um, that's usually my my setup. I keep it as as simple as I can, and uh, yeah, in the Bay Area, often a an extra jacket or another layer, uh, because have weird variable climate there. So uh, this is a a personal question in terms of like I'm I'm personally burning to ask this question, but you kind of like you know this is a nice segue into that. Uh, you mentioned you don't like to keep things in your pockets. I don't either, and I've become a big sling guy. Is there going to be a Tortuga sling anytime soon? Uh, there will be. It's on the uh, on the to-do list for, uh, we're kind of working on, we're calling it like V4. It's sort of the fourth generation of, of Tortuga products and of the business. So um, we'll reboot the, the travel backpacks first because that's kind of the, the bread and butter. Uh, and then once we get into the kind of smaller accessories like the day pack, um, sling is is for sure on there. There's been... I think there has been a big uh, a big renaissance of those. You aren't the only one. It started, I think, with some of the outdoor brands doing kind of re- rebranding fanny packs as slings and mm-hmm. packs. I think was kind of the language. And now, uh, yeah, in streetwear, you started seeing the slings like kind of over uh, worn over one shoulder on the chest or back or whatever. And yeah, now it feels like it's a, a real category again. We finally like bounce back from, I don't know, whatever uncool stigma there was for, for that kind of bag. So I think it was hipsters, man. I think hipsters (laughs) picked up their parents' fanny packs from the eighties and were like, all right, how do I make this cool? And they, you know, started wearing it across their chest and now it's cool. And you know, (laughs) which I'm actually okay with, because like I said, I don't like to like, I don't want to have a backpack with me all the time because it's just an overkill sometimes, but you still want to have a little bit of stuff with you. And I think that a sling is a great, uh, you know, solution for that. And I'm still looking for the perfect sling, man. I'm still, so, so what, let's do some product research. What do you, perfect. Keep, what do you carry in your sling? So I always have my wallet. I don't like to put my phone in my sling because it's just, I don't know. I put that in my back pocket. Um, sometimes I will have a battery bank and, um, a cord to, to charge that. I like to keep a pen in there in case I have to like sign anything, um, now I have a little, um, so I have this Topo Designs, the mini one that I, I use as my tech pouch. I put all of that stuff in there, but I don't bring this with me, but I have the minier one, the smaller one in which I keep some like, um, like, um, I keep like gum in there, um, hand sanitizer, just these, you know, chapstick things I don't necessarily use all the time, but might need. And that goes in there and sunglasses. And those are kind of like my must haves. Um, but, uh, yeah, like I said, sometimes I bring my charger and a, a cord just depending on how long it'll be out for. You don't carry, uh, your tablet or computer or anything in there, right? No, I have thought about like a bigger, I know who is, I think Nomadic has a sling that can fit an iPad, but that's almost like I wouldn't like, I would have to have that and like a sling, but no, I wouldn't, if I was bringing my iPad, I would just bring my backpack, I think. Okay. Yeah. I see, I see the bigger ones like that, that can carry a computer, but it feels like 
yeah, starting to be overkill or that at least that's a different product. There could be like a computer sling and a kind of pockets sling or like a purse equivalent sort of sling. And for me, it's like I'm always looking for and probably people listening as well. It's like I'm looking for things that can fold multiple uses. Right. And so if it's something that has like one very specific use that I'm only going to like essentially like reach for once a month, I'm not going to bring it with me. Right. Um, so I think uh, who came out with a sling recently that I thought was interesting. I haven't got my hands on it, but um, you're familiar with Pact and yeah. and their collaboration with Chase Reeves. Mm-hmm. They did an interesting thing where the sling are the hip straps. And I thought that was interesting. I thought the actual sling looked a little goofy, but I thought that was an interesting idea. Yeah, I, I've seen a couple like that where it's sort of the, you know, can be the bottom chunk almost of the bag or the hip belt. Um and then turn into a sling. I don't know. I don't know what ours will will be like. I think we'll we'll approach it um, like some of our other accessories as like this is kind of your your secondary bag, or I guess that could even be a third one, right? It doesn't have mm-hmm. to be a personal item exactly, but uh, that's kind of a secondary bag, and you're going to use it for when you're out and about in a destination. And then from there, it's basically figuring out you know what I just asked you of like okay, you're running around for the day and you're, let's say, not carrying your laptop. You're just kind of sightseeing, hanging out, whatever. What what do you want in that bag? And then what can we do to make that uh, kind of easy and convenient and, and comfortable to carry? Yeah, and I think it's also interesting, like, as you, I just had this conversation with a friend about, like, the, the evolution of people's, like, carry, right? Like, when I got started, I was one backpack guy, right? Like, I was, like, one backpack and I was stuffing everything in there and, you know, I was only bringing one pair of shoes, et cetera, et cetera. And then the more that we've become, my wife and I, like, you know, we've become far more like home bases. Like we have home bases that we go to and then like we might take like little trips around. We've started bringing more stuff. And even now we're having the discussion of like, hey, I think we're at this point where we need to upgrade to a rolling suitcase and then still have like a a carry on that's not huge smaller a little bit easier to go around with because like i don't want to do the you know the 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 turtle thing where you do the one backpack here and then the other backpack in the front yeah like i i feel like i'm approaching 30 now i'm getting a little too old to be doing that so it's almost like advancing to that point so what are some of your favorite locations uh you know as you were running tortuga remotely i know that you still spend quite a bit of time in the bay area but when you were kind of full-time remote what were some of your favorite locations to travel to as a digital nomad and entrepreneur? Yeah, I, uh, I feel like mine are always a little skewed by what, by the experience there. And then like also a lot of places that I've gone for work. So um, back when I was at Google, I tried to take advantage of all the, any travel that we were allowed to do there. So I uh, got to visit a lot of clients. And then I also did a couple uh, programs there that were kind of like basically like study abroad, but working abroad. So uh, spent three months in Sydney, Australia uh, on assignment, um, which was pretty rad. And uh, I've always had like a very soft spot for Australian Sydney since, since I got to actually spend enough time to, you know, to like, you know, the place a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, you know, got to travel around from there. So that one's always a favorite. And then uh, one of my other favorites was like uh, for whenever we'd go to uh, China for either trade shows or visiting factories and stuff. I would usually go through uh, Hong Kong, fly into there, spend a couple of days there. Obviously, that's like big hub airport, a little easier to fly into. Um, 
and I've really loved Hong Kong. And I think it's just because I've gone back there a bunch of times and gotten to like do a bunch of stuff. Um, ended up knowing and meeting some people uh, who live there. So had a little bit of a you know network to plug into whenever I would visit. Um, and I just love the energy of those kind of like big giant cities like that. Um, I don't know if I could, how long I could take that level, if I could live there like, you know, half time or full time, but uh, it was like a perfect place to pass through and spend a couple of days, eat some awesome food, uh, see some people I already knew, and then uh, kind of get to work uh, with the factories. Mm. Um, what does, you know, kind of wrapping up, I, I love to hear what people's days look like, because I think that's one of the things that people struggle with in like, you know, thinking about working remotely sounds like a great idea, but then you realize that you have all this freedom and you don't really know how to structure your day because no one's structuring it for you. Right. So what does a regular day look like for you in terms of work? So right, right now I don't have regular days because I'm, uh, you know, sort of sitting at the, right now I'm sitting at the kind of kitchen counter, uh, <laughs> talking to you and working and spend some time doing that. Then I do a little DIY type stuff, trying to get the the house ready here. So I'm, you know, using a drill, then I'm back to the computer. Um, so right now <laughs> is probably not a good example. Uh, my usual days though, uh, actually like to keep pretty routine and structured. I think that's, um, one of those things you kind of figure out over time. Like when you first go remote, it's like freedom, I'll do whatever I want. Right. I'll, you know, wear sweatpants and sleep in and whatever cliches people think, uh, you know, they're going to be excited about, but then you realize like, Oh, if I actually want to do you know, good work and be focused and stuff. You need to have good setup and good routines. So um, when I'm home, I actually have an office uh, that I rent, which is like two blocks from our apartment. So uh, walk two blocks to work, a uh, very tough commute. Um, and yeah, I generally my structure is like, uh, I'm kind of a morning person. So I like to get up, get to work, you know, kind of as soon as, as I can uh, and do all my big stuff in the morning. So you know, if I have to write and anything that's like brain work and real thinking, try to do in the morning. Um, then uh, after lunch, I'll go to the gym like three days a week or so. Um, and that's kind of a nice like afternoon break for me. So, you know, when maybe your energy is a little flagging after lunch mm -hmm. and in the afternoon, that's when I like to one, take a break just to like kind of, I don't know, break up the pattern. So I don't, I'm not just like sitting there, you know, passing time doing bad work. Um, and then it also just kind of energizes me a bit. Um, and then I also repeat that to like everyone on our team and everyone we hire to be like, Hey, I'm leaving for an hour in the middle of the day to go to the gym. Like this is an okay thing to do. So I think it's good in terms of setting an example. Uh, and then I'll come back and just kind of finish out the day with any, you know, emails, just sort of routine stuff you got to do. Um, and yeah, it ends up being like a fairly typical sounding, I think, a uh, workday aside from like the flexibility to, you know, take lunch whenever or, you know, break for the gym. But um, I think it's also a good, I don't know, it, it keeps me productive. I feel like I like the routine so that that kind of stuff I'm just not thinking about. And I can, you know, focus on my work when I'm at work and then get out when I'm done. So um, yeah, I, I think I keep kind of a like fairly normal schedule, which um, I think a lot is where a lot of people end up. But no one starts there because you just want to take right. advantage of the freedom, which is totally normal. For sure. What can we, I know that you mentioned that there's kind of like a V4 of Tortuga coming, but what can people expect? Like, what can we look forward to from Tortuga over the next year and kind of keep our eyes out for? Yeah. So uh, basically kind of moving from like the 
pre and pandemic era to like the next version of the business. So trying to use this as a time where it's like not just bad things happening, but um, hopefully it'll be more like when there's a forest fire and like some of the forest burns down, but then it grows back healthier. That's kind of what, what we want to do with the business. So um, yeah, we're going to be uh, kind of simplifying a lot of uh, the line that we do and kind of focused on, uh, on one collection, um, doing a big update to that, which is the Outbreaker. It's now the Outbreaker collection. Um, when is that coming out? When is the update coming? Uh, we're early days right now. So I always tell people it takes a year, but hopefully early next year would be the, uh, would be mm. the goal. Um, so kind of, um, updating, evolving sort of the uh, main products there, travel backpack. Um, and then we'll get into the, the day pack, the slings, all the accessories, like we were saying. Um, and probably before then we'll have, uh, working on a new website right now and just kind of rebooting like a little bit of everything that we do and, you know, taking this as a time to see, okay, what, what should we stop doing in the business? What should we do more of what, what can we do better? And what should we just like not be in the business of? So yeah, doing a lot of resets on our side, most of that won't be that visible. Um, but yeah, new products and, uh, I've been sharing some of that stuff on Instagram. So, uh, if you want to see kind of early sketches and some people, especially bag nerds like yourself, yeah. uh, like to kind of follow along and see like, Oh, that's, you know, you start out with this sketch and then it's this. And then next thing you know, there's a product. So, um, yeah, if that journey is interesting, uh, yeah, check us out on Instagram, I'm trying to share more of that stuff, um, and behind the scenes type things like that. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that. Um, where can people find out more about Tortuga? Where can they go buy backpacks? You know, if you, if somebody's listening and you need backpacks right now, you're gearing up to head back to Europe. I heard some announcements recently. Europe's opening up. Uh, a lot of countries are opening up. Where can they go find out and, and buy some of the backpacks? Yeah, we're just at tortugabackpacks.com. So T-O-R-T-U-G-A. It's the Spanish word for turtle. Uh, make sure you put an S at the end for backpacks or just Google it. You'll, uh, we're hard to miss. Um, and yeah, check it out. Uh, depending on when this goes up, we, we've got a summer sale going for a couple of our collections. So um, yeah, we're, we're clearing out some old inventory, helping people uh, make it a little easier on people to get a new bag and get ready to travel again. So trying to do our, our part and, uh, you know, spark a little travel, uh, travel boom here. So to give people kind of like an easy call to action, I think this would be interesting. What bag do you think should be the first bag that if they're interested, they want to go check out, uh, you know, the website and kind of browse around, what would be the bag that's kind of like your favorite or the one that you suggest that they go check out first? Yeah, I would say start with the Outbreaker backpack. That's kind of our uh, top of the line, really cool technical materials that were actually made originally for uh, racing sailboats. And now we've yes. kind of uh, adapted them for, for bags. Um, so not an obvious connection, but uh, some pretty cool stuff there. They'll also adjust to your height. So, um, you know, if you're a little shorter or taller, you're kind of like at either end of the spectrum and have a tough time fitting gear like that. Uh, that'll typically be better. And if you check that out and you think it's overkill, uh, then try the next one would be the set out backpack, which is kind of our, uh, we call it like the Goldilocks bag, but it's sort of like mm -hmm. right in the middle, just right for most people. If you don't want the like super fancy high tech stuff. Um, so that that's kind of the, the number two option if Outbreaker is not right for you. Yeah. I suggest the Outbreaker. I have the set out 45 and I wish I'd gotten the Outbreaker 45 in originally, but I would say if anybody's listening to this and they're looking for a good daily backpack and then one that transitions really well to travel with, 
the Outbreaker Day Pack is incredible. I did a video review of it. Um, so if anybody wants to see that, I'll put that in the show notes. But uh, yeah, I love that backpack both for daily carry and for uh, travel. But Fred, thank you so much for uh, coming by. I, I really appreciate it. I love everything you guys are doing and best of luck with everything at Tortuga. Awesome. Thanks for having me. This was fun. 